So we've been going through the letter to the Hebrews. The author here has been laying down a foundation for his argument that the new covenant is better. It's a better covenant with better promises, hence the title for this series. He is continuing to build his argument like an expert lawyer. He began by showing us how Christ is above all things, powers, principalities, dominions, all of these other things. Now he uh, he continued that argument by showing that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He was even greater than Joshua and the earthly high priests. Now we will begin to see that Jesus and his covenant is greater than the law and the temple worship itself. Today we're going to look at another large portion of this letter, and in doing so we're going to unpack two big ideas from the text. First, a warning, and second, a promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for preserving this text for us, that we could come and see amazing things about Jesus and amazing things about your love for us and how you saved us. Lord, I just ask that you would give us eyes to see what's here in the scriptures, that we would um, believe your word, that we would trust your word, and that we would be built up and encouraged uh, in the faith today. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy shown to undeserving sinners. You took us from death and darkness and sin and brought us to new life. We have a new heart, a clean heart. We've been brought close to you. We can now come before your throne of grace boldly, all because of Jesus. Help us to see this. Help us to lay hold of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin, excuse me, with a warning. The first century audience of this letter was experiencing persecution, troubles, suffering, and a lot of pressures. One of the pressures that many likely faced was peer pressure from family, friends, all to turn away from this group of crazy followers of Jesus, or at that time known as followers of the way. Early Christians were first called that before the name Christian was used. In the book of Acts, we're told that Saul, before he became known As Paul, who we know him as, went to arrest believers who belonged to the way. Now we're more commonly called Christians. But this phrase, the way, uh, presumably referred to Jesus' statement in the book of John when he said, I'm the, the way, the truth, and the life. Now I will caution, if you go to Google and start looking up the way, there is a modern day cult also known as the way. um, And that's not what I'm referring to here, obviously. Now imagine for a moment, if you will, what it would have been like to be one of those believers in these days in Jerusalem. The recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were in Jerusalem. Imagine you're one of them. You've begun to hear about these followers of Jesus, the man who was crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. You've heard about this group called the Way and that it's growing. And so your interest is piqued, and you attend their meetings for a short time. You're, you're hearing the, the word uh, being taught by these men called apostles. They teach that in order to be saved from eternal judgment, you must turn from your dead works to faith in God. Specifically, faith in Christ, God's anointed one, God's chosen one, the Son of God. But you're not sure yet. 
Your parents are urging you to come back to the rituals that you've known your whole life. You want to honor them, of course, as is fitting in the law. And beyond that, there's the fear that you would have over leaving behind the old covenant and the curses that accompanied it for failing to obey the commands of temple worship, to leave that behind uh, in, in brought along with it curses. So you're hearing what these guys are saying and you're just not sure yet. And though you've experienced some amazing things with this group of people, the pull of rituals, the pull of washings, the pull of temple worship sacrifices and all these things, it's just too much. And so you're thinking of leaving this newfound community. This warning that we're looking at this morning was written to such a person, someone who is walking the tightrope of this decision to either go back to what was safe and what was known or to go all in with this group called the way. So this morning we're going to break up these uh, sections of this larger section of scripture. We're covering chapter 5, 11 through chapter 6, verse 20. So we're going to break it up in sections again. So let's start by reading uh, chapter 5, 11 through 14. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author, and again, we don't know who the author is, We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but he tells the Hebrews that he has a lot to say on the matters that have been spoken of already. Things of righteousness, of Christ being our high priest, all the things that he's covered in the previous chapters. But there's a problem here. Some in his audience have become dull of hearing. They've turned a deaf ear to the real thing. They're drawn to the things of temple worship, the what we would refer to as the old covenant, all the rituals, all the ceremonial things that we find in the law. They've not grown in the things of God. They've stopped listening to the teaching of the apostles and have begun flirting with the old ways of Judaism and Moses. So the writer says they still need the milk, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Elsewhere in the scriptures, the oracles of God, the oracles of God refer to um, all of the revelation of God. They need to hear again that their spiritual condition is not remedied by repetitive dead works. And so he's pleading with them to come to their senses to hear and take in the solid food. This solid food is the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness is a free gift and not their own doing. Righteousness is being in right standing with God. So the writer is saying all that you're doing to be okay with God, to be right with God is totally missing the mark. It's going back to the law. You're not ready to go forward because you can't get past this attempt to earn your righteousness. So it's not a matter of doing good and rejecting evil morals What is good here is the message of Christ, and what is evil here is the message of doing to earn righteousness. 
And if righteousness depends on your doing, you're going to fail. If your righteousness depends on you, you will fail. Let's continue on reading chapter 6, 1 through 8. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith or and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We have this warning here. And I just want to say right off the bat that I believe this to be one of the most misunderstood passages. It's often used to say that one could become a born-again believer, to exhibit faith and believe in Christ and somehow stop believing, reject Christ, and then not be able to repent and not be able to return. I don't believe that's what this passage is about. And I don't believe that it is possible for a born-again believer to fall away finally from salvation. There will certainly be times of doubt, There will be times of grievous sin in the life of a believer and even perhaps a period of time, sometimes extended periods of time where someone may walk away from the church. But I believe that the believer, if they've been born again, will be drawn back. Jesus will lose no one that is truly his. We saw in 1 John when we went through that series that those who have fallen away permanently are those who were never believers to begin with. Now, I want to add to that the clarification that we're not saying that anybody who leaves this church is those who have fallen away permanently. There will be times when people will leave your fellowship. Sometimes God moves the family elsewhere. You know, think of the Lewandowskis. They left here to go plant a church in Tennessee. We don't go around going, they are those who have left us to show that they were never of us. That's just foolishness. So it's not to say that. Let's break down this passage. In verse 1, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's not saying let's get past the ABCs of the gospel. He's not advocating that you only need the message of Christ once, and then you go on to something else. Uh, When you're a baby Christian, you hear about Jesus, and then you never hear about Jesus again. It's not what he's saying. I believe what he's saying is, again, let's get past this most basic principle that somehow you can earn your righteousness yourself, and you cannot. So let's get past these elementary doctrines of repenting from dead works and turning to Christ. You must leave the dead works of the temple and believe in the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That your works, your obedience, your devotion are just not good enough. If it depends on you and your devotion, your commitment, your effort, you'll never have enough. The author mentions some uh, some things here specifically in verses 1 and 2. He lists dead works, washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are all law things. Dead works encompasses all of it. 
all self-justifying, meritorious efforts. Paul would call relying on these things, putting confidence in the flesh. I want to draw your attention to Philippians 3, 2 through 10. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about Judaizers, those who would say you need the law plus grace. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. During Paul's time to be born of the tribe of Benjamin was to be better than the other tribes. As to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. couple things to take note of here. Uh, it's going to come up a couple more times, but there's this um, joint idea here of faith and knowing. Righteousness depends on faith, and because of that, he knows Christ. To know Christ is to have faith in Christ. We're going to see that a couple more times. But also, we need to notice that Paul considered all of these things, which he could have placed his confidence in, not just dead works, but he actually considered them as rubbish or dung, as some translations have. Um, and to be frank with you, most translations kind of sugarcoat what this word actually means. It's pretty graphic. He's saying it's the worst imaginable. Your, your confidence in your flesh is as if I was to grab one of Fern's diapers filled with mess and run around being like, look at what I've done for God. It's disgusting. It's nasty. Depending on these things cannot make you righteous because God looks at it and says, get that away from me. The washings here in Hebrews 6 are a reference to the ceremonial washings commanded in the law. The priests were required to wash themselves before doing temple duties. They would do lots of sacrifices throughout the day. There would be blood everywhere. And so before they would do a sacrifice, they had to wash themselves completely. Part of the sacrificial system. The laying on of hands is not a charismatic or Pentecostal thing. I'm not opposed to the laying on of hands. In the sacrificial system, the earthly priests would place their hands on the animals to symbolically transfer sin to the animal. Think of the scapegoat. The high priest once a year would place his hands on the goat, transferring symbolically the sins of Israel. And then they would send this goat out into the wilderness. Every year. This work was never finished. Had to be done over and over and over. Think of how many lambs, how many goats, how many bulls had to be sacrificed. But Jesus was the ultimate scapegoat. And our sin was laid upon him. 
but he declared the work to be done. It was finished. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment spoken here are mentions of the arguments amongst the Jews over these topics. At this time in Jewish history, there was lots of disagreement over these topics, specifically between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed once you died, that was it. And that's why they were sad, you see. So that wasn't in my notes, and I debated saying that. And the flesh won out. As we've seen throughout this letter, many of the Hebrews uh, who were part of this church in Jerusalem, they were flirting with the law and they were still hung up on these things. It was as if they were just arguing amongst themselves over these topics, the dead works of the law, the temple worship, the washings, the, the scapegoat, all these things. They couldn't get past it and move on to faith in Christ. The author desires them to move on from that. Verses 4 through 6 present the tough part of this passage. And perhaps at first glance it could sound like Christians who have sinned too many times or too grievously and now have simply run out of forgiveness. That there is a limit somehow to God's forgiveness. That's not what is in sight here. The author describes these people as those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. I want to draw your attention to the fact that all of these things he points to are experiences. Yet nothing is mentioned of belief here about these people. And context matters. We're not looking at this passage just in isolation. We have to look at the whole of the book of Hebrews. I asked you, Uh, When we looked at Hebrews 4 to really pay attention to the word unbelief, I asked you to highlight or underline it in 419. In that chapter, we saw that Israel experienced powerful powerful miracles and wonders. What all did Israel experience before they committed this sin of unbelief? They had seen the plagues over and over, God's hand striking against Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea parted, and they walked on dry ground. Then they saw the waves come down and destroy the entire Egyptian army in one fell swoop. They saw the cloud during the day and the fire by night leading them through the wilderness. And when they came to the very gate of the new land that was destined for them, the land of promise, the land of Canaan, they wouldn't go in because they were scared. They didn't believe God. And their unbelief caused God to say, okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You're not going to enter into rest. Not because they sinned in some grievous way, but because of unbelief. This warning is to unbelievers. The people the author addresses here are those who have been enlightened. That is that they've heard the word of God proclaimed and they've had an increase in knowledge. They've learned some things about God. They had the best teachers there were. The guys who wrote the New Testament. They were in Jerusalem. They would have heard from Peter and John, possibly even Paul. And yet they still turned a deaf ear. It says they tasted, they shared, and again tasted. That is, they've had the good news held out to them by the apostles, and they said, no, thank you. They wouldn't go for it. You know, at home when we make something new for dinner, for Olive, and I, I like to do the cooking as we learned last night at the not-so-newlywed game. Um, I'm the better cook. <clears throat> My wife's in agreement on that one. 
It's not me boasting. Maybe. Um, we, we make Olive try everything we make, at least. You know, she's got to at least taste it and try it. But there are times when I make something I absolutely know she's going to hate. But we still make her try it. But it's funny that sometimes she takes that bite, and it doesn't really look like a bite. She grabs the fork and kind of... The tongue, you probably can't see that, but the tongue just kind of flicks out for a second, touches the fork. Nope, don't like it. She's tasted it, but she won't go for it. She won't swallow it down. She's rejected it. These people had likely seen miracles, just like the Jewish people in Moses' day had seen miracles. They've been part of this community. They've experienced some of the life of the body. It is possible to come in and be a part of a local church, experience some wonderful things, some loving things, people sharing their their resources with you, generosity with you. They experienced this. But all the while they were hedging their bets with temple worship. They had one foot here in this new covenant community and one foot out the door. And when you have one foot out the door, that's where you're leaning. That's where you're heading. So hear the warning that's here. It is possible to be a part of a local expression of a church. Not saying to be part of the church, because to do that you have to believe, but to be part of a gathering, part of an assembly, to experience an increase in knowledge, to sense a bit of God's presence, maybe perhaps even to cry a few times to experience the love of the body and never truly believe the good news of Jesus Christ. It's possible to serve. It's possible to be part of um, the volunteers serving in the church. It's possible to be um, living in this community day in and day out and still not receive Christ. These Hebrews had come to some realization of what it is that Jesus offers though they didn't fully understand it because their hearts were still darkened by sin. But now they're on the verge of rejecting him, and in doing so, they will publicly put Jesus to shame. How do they put him to shame? Well, they've heard this message of Jesus, that he's greater than the law, that he is the Son of God, that he died for their sins. Perhaps even some of them have witnessed this. They saw Jesus. They heard him speak. Maybe they even witnessed the crucifixion. And having heard all of this, they decided to go back to temple worship, to go back to the rituals, to go back to what was known and say, no, I would rather have the blood of goats and lambs than the blood of Jesus. They're saying that the blood of Jesus is just not enough. Such a person has fallen from grace to law. And really, there's nothing for them to go back to, as we're going to continue to see, because the old covenant is now obsolete. They're running back to nothingness. Jesus said this in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, when he was speaking to Israel here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at what Jesus says that these people point to. Their experiences. And they're amazing experiences. They cast out demons. They prophesied. They did all of these mighty works in his name. Think of in the book of Acts when, um, I think it's the book of Acts. I'm flying off the cuff here. Um, we're told of the man who casts out demons and the demons respond to him and say, uh, I think Peter and Paul, I know Jesus, I know, but I don't know you. They tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and it didn't work. Here, we see some people that possibly did cast out demons, did mighty things. But Jesus says he'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Remember back to Philippians 3, Paul showed that knowing Christ and him knowing us is tied to faith. It's not that Jesus knew them and forgot them. It's not that Jesus knew them, but they departed. He never knew them. They were not obedient to God. They didn't do the will of the Father. They were workers of lawlessness. But this lawlessness is not heinous acts of sin. This lawlessness is heinous acts of disobedience. They did not believe, and they died in their unbelief. What then is the will of the Father that Jesus was speaking of? John six forty, Jesus says, this is the will of God. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The one who believes is given eternal life and can enjoy the confidence of eternal security. 1 Corinthians 1, 6-8, Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some cheap, once saved, always saved, where you just say a prayer and then go back to living any old way, going back like nothing ever happened. This is a living faith kept by Jesus himself. So the question isn't, will I stop believing? Because Jesus will sustain even your belief. He's put you in a body of believers for this purpose, to help sustain your belief, to encourage you, to exhort you, to call out when there is sin. This is what the ordinary means of grace are for, as we hear the word proclaimed, as we sing together, as we gather together, partaking in baptism and and communion and those things. We're being encouraged to hold fast. Romans 6 encourage you to take a look at that today. Romans 6 shows that the believer's old self has been crucified and dead, and now the believer is alive in Christ and has become a slave of righteousness. Your new self loves to obey God and hates when you sin. Otherwise, why would you have that feeling when you commit some kind of act of sin? Why would you have that... that uh, check in your spirit when something is wrong that's not natural to you that's the holy spirit it's because that sin is no longer who you are you're a new creation 
if this warning was about losing faith or losing salvation, then really the rest of the context of the book of Hebrews makes no sense. Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 will all show us in the coming weeks how secure salvation is. Also in verses 7 and 8 here, the author mentions two soils. This example kind of rings of what Jesus preached on in his um, parable of the soils. It shows us that one could taste and not swallow the gospel down. There is the ground that drinks the rain, and there is a crop. There is fruit. There's evidence of the life within. There is obedience, and the primary way of obedience is believing Jesus, and we continue on obeying him. There is love for God. There's love for people. There's serving one another, the fruit of the Spirit. But there's also a soil that when the rain falls, it doesn't take the rain in. And what is born is thorns and thistles. Listen to the description of this thorny ground. It's worthless. It's near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. This isn't speaking of someone with that new life within them. This isn't speaking of a born-again person. These are the type of things that you hear of the unbeliever. This is the one who is dead in their sins and trespasses, and yet has heard the good news and rejected it. But the author doesn't want to leave those who are believers, who are hearing this with the weight of wondering, am I the one? Am I, am I not a believer? Remember back when Jesus said in the Last Supper to his disciples, one of you will betray me, and all of them were like, is that me? Am I the one that betrayed you? They started questioning themselves. He doesn't want us to sit in that. He doesn't want us to sit with the weight of this. I want to point out that this really is an evangelistic passage. This warning is directed to unbelievers, calling them to the good news to repent and believe. And there's still an opportunity to believe. Turn from those dead works, because as he said before, today is the day of salvation. It's still held out to them. So if you've heard this warning today and haven't decided what to do about this, Jesus, you've tasted, but you're just not sure, I want to encourage you to believe, because today's the day. Grab hold of this. Take it in. This warning is serious. And so seriously consider Jesus. But let's, let's go forward here. Let's read uh, verses 9 through 12, through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The audience that the author is writing to is a large audience, most of whom are believers, but there are those in the audience who are tempted to go back to the law as we've seen. He warns those tempted to, re- uh, those tempted to return to the law to believe to turn from those dead works. But here, beginning in verse 9, he's writing to those who have believed to offer some encouragement. He says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He just wants to encourage them that he knows there are better things for those who have believed. He's saying, believers, don't be discouraged by what I've just said. Don't fear what I've just wrote. I'm convinced of better things for you. Why? Because you're saved. You're not the land that was cursed. You're receiving the rain. The author shows that God sees their love for one another. He sees this. 
God loves you and wants you to enjoy Christ and experience the fullness of assurance. So imitate those who continue in faith, holding fast to the promise of Jesus Christ. Don't be sluggish. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And now the author turns his attention to the security of one's salvation, and he gives this amazing promise. Let's look at this promise in verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Oh, my page is stuck together here. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is an amazing promise. This is an incredible passage of scripture. It's incredibly rich. He speaks of Abraham and this promise to Abraham is simply stated here as he will bless you and and multiply you. When God promised this promise to Abraham, it was all encompassing. There was more to it. He promised uh, a child to be born to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. He promised that the Messiah would come through that line. This was the whole of the promise to Abraham. Here it's just summed up as being multiplied and being blessed. Now, when you and I make promises, we might swear on something that we hold to be greater than ourselves, right? In court, or when taking an oath of political office, you swear on the Bible. I'll tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. It seems to be kind of going away. Perhaps when you were a kid, and you were playing with your friends, and you were like telling them something like, I don't believe you, like, I swear to God And if your parents heard you, they scolded you, right? Well, when God made this promise to Abraham, what could he swear by that was higher than himself? Well, nothing and no one. Since he had no no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God swore to God. Why would God do that? Why would he make a promise, an oath to himself? Why would it be built on him? So that we, you and I, Heirs of the promise would be convinced. Our salvation is guaranteed by God, by two unchangeable things. And when he says these two unchangeable things, the author is kind of being a little bit lighthearted here. Because simply put, these two unchangeable things are one that God cannot lie and two that God cannot lie. That's the double promise. God cannot lie. So when the new covenant was struck, it was between God on one side and God on the other side, and God cannot lie. Your salvation is not a promise between you and God. It's not even really a promise from God to you. It's a promise between God and God. And I'm not saying there are two gods. It's God the Father on one side and God the Son on the other. In John 17, 1 through 5, uh, John 17 is what we call the great high priestly prayer of Jesus 
In the first five verses, we have this portion of this prayer to the Father. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This new covenant. This bloody covenant. Enacted with the precious blood of Jesus. Was between the father and the son. And you are the beneficiary of this promise, this covenant. You're the heir of the promise. You're the gift given from the father to the son. But you don't make the promise. Your salvation isn't, I promise God, I'll never do anything bad again. It's a promise between the father and the son. Jesus received all those who would believe in him from the Father. We tend to make the Christian life all about us. We tend to make it about our strength, our faithfulness, our dedication, our commitment. And often when we disagree about passages like this, it always comes back to questions like, well, what if I do this? What if I keep sinning in the same way? What if I I sin too much? The Christian life isn't about you and I. It's not to say that sin isn't important. We need to take that seriously. But your salvation didn't begin because of your commitment. It's not going to end because of your lack of commitment. The Christian life is not about you and I. It's all about Jesus. He is holding fast to those who are his. Who was the promise between? What is the anchor of your soul? It's not you. And it definitely better not be me. I'm not your anchor. Jesus is your anchor. It comes back to Jesus. The writer says we are those who have fled for refuge. Those who have believed in Christ as the greater and the only sacrifice. The greater high priest. We've taken refuge in him. That is, we are relying on him alone. For salvation, for maintaining our faith, for continual daily grace, for sanctification, for loving one another, for serving one another. It's all from him. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor. He is the anchor of the soul. Our emotions are up and down. Our experiences are up and down. We go through things that cause us to drift. We face difficulties, struggles, temptations, pressures, but Jesus remains sure and steadfast. Now, what we've seen throughout this passage that we've looked at is that some have tasted. They've heard this glorious message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And they've said, no, thank you. The blood of goats and lambs is sufficient. Going back to temple worship. And others, when they heard the good news, believed. And the believer, and now you and I, 
have this incredible oath, this promise, and this sure and steadfast anchor, Jesus Christ. Some application. The thing is, um, you and I are likely not tempted by ceremonial worship of the temple. We're not tempted by the laying hands on uh, goats and lambs. I mean, maybe to pet them or something, but we're not really tempted by sacrificing a goat. I'm not a big fan of eating goat either. I don't know, maybe you are. So how does this apply to us today? See, the warning that we've looked at was to unbelievers, those flirting with temple things, deciding which was better. The promise was to believers. Yet, you and I as believers may still be tempted to mix law and grace. We may not even think of it that way. We may not even think we're mixing the two. But if we begin to rely on anything other than the grace of God, that's exactly what we're doing. When we depend on obedience, faithfulness, character, actions, all of that, we're mixing law and grace. Believer, you have this promise. You won't lose your salvation. But when you mix law and grace, you may lose out on rest. You may lose out on living in freedom, experiencing all that God has for you. You may miss out on the fullness of assurance, constantly wondering, am I in or am I out? When anything is added to grace, law takes over. That's, that's all it ends up being. You mix law and grace, what ends up taking over is law. And it leads to fear, despair, lack of peace, condemnation. It can be anything. It can be really good things. And to be frank with you, when we mix law and grace, it's hardly ever bad things that we mix with grace. Good things like having um, a, a good environment to raise our families in. Good things. Family values, Christian principles, things that we consider to be keeping with the Christian life like prayer, Bible reading, church attendance, faithfulness and giving. I, you know, I, I take the trash out every Sunday. I, I, I make the coffee. I, I, I do these things. When we depend on those things, it becomes mixing law and grace. We cannot depend on these good things for our righteousness, for being okay with God. Why are you okay with God? Well, it's because I've been part of Grace Life for 10 years and I uh, really love my church. That's not why you're okay with God. Your righteousness comes from Christ alone, not separation from the world, not devotion to prayer, not any of these other good things. And so if we find ourselves depending or relying on Christian traditions, morals, um, all of these things, uh, in addition to grace, when these are the things we point to as the answer to life's problems, we have mixed law and grace. Now, we may not even be saying these things are necessary for salvation, but sometimes we do make ultimatums out of them. A Christian must do these things. Or oppositely, you're not a Christian if you do those things. At best, some of these things are the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the new life of the believer, and the believer will begin to do those things. And we encourage one another to do those things. But we don't hold them out as ultimatums. But some of these things are just our preferences. Righteousness, that is being right with God, is through faith in Christ alone. Otherwise, we're just making laws for ourselves and others, and we're holding it out over somebody. Scripture shows that a Christian will begin to love, to serve, give, be gentle, will obey as the Holy Spirit bears fruit. 
It's not that a Christian must do those things in order to be a Christian. A Christian is a Christian because Jesus has said so and has given new life, a new believing heart to the Christian. A Christian will do these things because of the new life in Christ and the Spirit's work. It's the natural flow of the supernatural. And there will certainly be times when the Christian will sin, will not be loving or kind, may get other things wrong. And that's why you have brothers and sisters in Christ who say, hey, that wasn't right. Let's, let's believe in Christ. Let me show you this. Call them back. Now, one might argue that when we draw lines about law and gospel, trying to make these distinctions, that we're just splitting hairs. Is it splitting hairs to make good gospel distinctions? No. We see in Hebrews 4 that the word of God, the word of Christ is able to split between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the gospel does more than split hairs. It gets to the intentions of your heart. The motivation of the heart. See, law motivates by demanding, driving, condemning, controlling, and earning. But the gospel draws by grace and love. And grace will order our affections. And grace will order our priorities, our preferences. Grace is better. And it is enough. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, we would ask you this morning that you would indeed order our affections. Would you guard our hearts against blurring the lines between law and gospel, law and grace? Help us to see the promises of scripture, the promises of the covenant, the promise of the word that we see here between you, the Father, and your precious Son. May it give us encouragement and hope. May we sense the sure and steadfast anchor. Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet believed, has been maybe tempted, has been tempted to go back to things outside of grace. Father, I ask that you would stir their hearts this morning to swallow the gospel down deep, to take it in, to believe to quit tiptoeing the line between law and grace, to go all in on the gospel. Give them faith to believe. Grant them the gift of faith. Grant them the gift of repentance. Would you change hearts, Father? Father, I just ask that you would encourage my brothers and sisters that as we hold fast to the gospel, as we furiously obsess over the gospel, as we consider Jesus, as we pay careful attention to these things, that we would recognize that ultimately it's you who are holding us fast. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.